Hello, I'm Will Milne and welcome to Dialogos, where we talk with some of the most interesting and insightful people in the world today. Today's guest is one of the most prominent New Testament scholars around, Dr. Daryl Bock, from Dallas Theological Seminary, where he is currently Executive Director of Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Centre and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies. He has authored over 40 books and hosts the Table podcast. In this episode, we will focus on the very broad topic of whether whether the New Testament documents are reliable. Uh, thank you so much for featuring on the podcast, Dr. Bock. Oh, glad to be with you. Thanks. Um, so, Dr. Bock, obviously before we even approach the content of the New Testament and what how reliable that is, how, how sure are you that the New Testament we have is what the in, in original authors wrote um, back in the first century or whenever they were written. Yeah, um, the, with regard to the text that we have, um, there is no ancient work that comes even close to the kind of textual attestation that the New Testament possesses. We have over 5,800 Greek manuscripts. We have even more Latin manuscripts um, that run through um, several centuries. And so I tell people that when they look at all the variants, and sometimes you hear large numbers of variants, that that's because you have large numbers of manuscripts, um, that the... that the problem is we have the text plus we have 105% of the text as opposed to 100% of the text that we have to sort out. And when you go through the text critical process, um, we can get back to the text. And it, even in the places where we're not exactly certain what the text is, we know what the what the options are. So, um, so the text that we have of the New Testament definitely reflects what was written and what was presented in the various books as uh, what the authors uh, wrote when they wrote the individual pieces, the 27 books of the New Testament. Um, someone like Bart Ehrman, who everyone speaks about a lot, would say that the first manuscripts were written a lot later on than the original you know, uh, autographs that were written. Um, and he'll point to the fact that we only have a few from the second century and then it gets a bit more numerous as you go through the centuries. Surely that's a cause of concern um, in terms of when... Well, you think it's the cause of concern, except yeah. actually it isn't. It's the way papyri works. You, mm. um, you put something down on a papyrus, it wears out, and so you make a new copy, that kind of thing. So the issue is not just the date of the manuscripts, but the quality of the tradition that you're copying from. And... Uh, the nature of the material that we have is such that uh, the copying process looks to be uh, pretty secure. Um, uh, so there are, there are places where, you know, the copying it does reflect uh, errors, but the wealth of manuscripts that we have and the breadth of what they represent in terms of copying um, means that we're getting a preservation not just of the originals, but also of some of the um, errors that have crept in. And like I said, the issue isn't that we've lost anything. The issue is that we have we have what was originally written plus all those errors to deal with. And there are good ways to sort those out. So if you 
if you look at the number of variants, a lot of them have to do with spelling variations or things like that, things that were naturally, you would naturally spot as an error. I mean, most of us have experience with email where there's been a typing error or whatever, and you look at it and you go, oh, I know what that person was intending to say. Um, that kind of thing. That's the bulk of the variants that you have. And then some of them relate to word order in Greek because you can put words in any order in Greek, even though they're saying the same thing. That counts as a variant, but it actually doesn't change the meaning, that kind of thing. So um, uh, we shouldn't exaggerate the nature of the problem here. It, there are variants. They're part of the copying process. Yes, some of our manuscripts are later, but we have whole copies of, um, of texts that go pretty far back, and we have a lot of... Uh, evidence for that material in multiple languages to to compare and so you know uh, most how can i say this most ancient historians would uh, drool over having as much evidence as we have for the new testament they would be there they would be so jealous to have that for other texts that we take for granted uh, with much less manuscript tradition than what we have for the new testament um are there so you're saying there's no theological um doctrine that is changed by or put into question by any manuscript uh, uh, any manuscript differences because i mean i was i mean bartman claims there are or well, seems to yeah, make well, it here a big deal and here, I, I never i never understand what he's saying because the trinity doctrine even if the place in one john or whatever is isn't there it's still in the rest of the scripture and stuff like that but yeah, was, yeah. So the point's correct that, um, and this is often said that no major doctrine of Christianity is impacted by the nature of these variants taken when you take them all as a whole. And the yeah. other thing, but the what is impacted is how many verses count for a teaching. Okay. But what isn't in what isn't impacted is the fact that that is what is taught in the Bible. It's just a question of how much, or how many different places. So. Um, so, so the core of the Christian faith, the next point to make then is, is that the core of the Christian faith, as embedded in the New Testament, is still embedded in the New Testament, despite what you do with these variants. Hmm. So, assuming that we have what the original authors wrote, I know it's a massive question, but how how can you decide that they're in the canon? What what gives them? What gives you the justification to say that those are in the canon and? some other gospels in the second century um, are not in the canon. Is it purely date-based? Um, it's, it's, well, it's rootage-based. It's not okay. date-based so much as rootage date. It's rooted in either an apostle or someone who is very close to an apostle. Mm. And it's rooted in the amount of reception that it received uh, geographic, in terms of geographic distribution within the early church. Uh, it has to do with the actual theological content. The other Gospels that we talk about, since you mentioned Gospels specifically, yeah. uh, the other Gospels that tend to come in to this discussion all reflect a view, or, or many of them reflect a view of God in the creation that doesn't come out of Judaism and therefore was not was accepted by the early church, which was all Jewish at the beginning. And so they have, they have a, a subsidiary God 
and this is part of Christian Gnosticism. They have a subsidiary God who botched the creation from the beginning. The creation wasn't very good at the beginning. And so that would never be a doctrine. You, we aren't even talking about the Christology differences. Uh, that would never be a doctrine of the earliest Christianity. So um, along with this challenge, the other Gospels comes a view that there was no such thing as orthodoxy in the first century, which is problematic, and uh, because um, people were reacting to um, all kinds of, of false teaching, even in the even in the New Testament documents that we see. So there is something there that is the core of what is being taught, and if you trace that orthodoxy, even through the second century, most people who take this alternative view say that Irenaeus is the father of orthodoxy at the end of the second century. You can take all the writings from before Irenaeus, and you can see this orthodox strand consistently being rendered in the materials that come before Irenaeus, and you can see the reaction in church fathers from other views that are popping up in the second century. So, uh, we have lists that only list four Gospels, um, mm. and they, and some of them even talk about other writings that are excluded, and some church fathers do the same thing. So um, the issue of the content of the canon with regard to particularly the four Gospels, and I would say the core Pauline collection, um, uh, 1 Peter, 1 John, by the end of the second century, fully 20 one of the 27 books are recognized and utilized, and then uh, the remaining six get sorted out in the next two centuries in terms of being part of the collection. So just, for example, take the Gospel of John. When, you're, when, when you say that that's part of the canon, part of the canon because John obviously was an apostle, um, it wasn't written too late. I know that's a, a secondary sort of thought. It wasn't written too late. It was written within the first century. Um, and it was within the orthodox strain of thought. Are they the reason? And it was why? widely circulating and accepted okay. by churches across the community. Okay. And and that and that is not only a wide distribution in terms of location, geography, but it becomes a wide distribution across time. In other words, in the period when the when the canon contents were being contemplated. It continued to be used and continued to be identified as the four Gospels. By the time we get to Irenaeus, at the end of the second century, he says there are four Gospels like there are four directions of the wind. Uh, and so, um, uh, so fourfold nature of the, of the Gospels are well-established. Tatian wrote a dia tesseron, which means through the four, as a way of trying to combine the story of the Gospels into one. He thought that might be a more effective way to present their content. That was never accepted, but the very fact that he chose the four Gospels to do it says something. So uh, all those things are going on with this kind of material. And uh, and so uh, the fact that the church took its time to recognize what this material was, of course, they were forced to do it at some point as other Gospels made claims for this space. Um, uh, you know, once once you start getting things that claim to be uh, New Testament or claim to be Bible, but aren't, and you want to identify those, that's also forces you to identify, this is what we believe in, and this is what we don't. And that's what happened, and that's why the process took some time. So, I'm looking at the Bible, and sorry, I am focusing a bit on the Gospels because it's so broad in the New Testament. Um, what, 
historically, what picture do you think you, you can create of Jesus just pure, through pure historical rules? Um, are there certain things that you can establish about who Jesus was? Yeah, I think you can establish that he had the reputation as a miracle worker. I think you can establish that he claimed to be the Messiah at the center of the program of God. I think you can establish for sure that he was crucified for sedition uh, by the Roman government, which was a political charge that was um, created out of a religious charge coming out of Judaism that he that they believed that he was blaspheming by claiming to have this unique position in in uh, in the plan of God by the Jewish leaders, and then they translated that into a political charge. Well, he's claiming to be a king that Rome didn't appoint, and Rome appoints the kings. That's sedition, so uh, he needs to be crucified and removed from the scene. I think he can prove all that. We we um, edited a book um, uh, on uh, on the uh, on the historical Jesus. It was a group of about fifteen of us. In the IBR Jesus group, we went through 12 core events in Jesus' life that we defended on the basis of the historical uh, application of method and, and said all these events have a good, uh, solid claim to authenticity. If these 12 events are authentic, then you can know who Jesus is, and it pretty much matches what you see in the Gospels. Um, how mainstream—how— how... With regards to those aspects of Jesus's life that you think were genuinely historical, how wide agreement is there among scholars on those facts? Um, what what facts among those do you think most scholars would agree were his, are historical? There's virtually no debate that Jesus was crucified for sedition by Rome. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you, you can be as liberal or conservative as you want, except for the people who think that Jesus was a complete myth and they're completely on the edge. Of, mm. uh, of Jesus studies, everyone recognizes that. Then from there, you've mm. got to ask yourself, how did we get to that place? How did we get to the place where Rome thought Jesus was enough of a, of a threat to go to the trouble of crucifying him? And he's got to have done and said things that put him in that position. That puts him in a messianic slot of some kind um, where he claims to be a king, or there's a perception that he claimed to be a king that Rome didn't appoint, that puts him in that position. Most scholars will recognize that. Some scholars say that the agitation wasn't that he claimed to be a king, but that he claimed um, he, he, he had a prophetic voice that was a little bit revolutionary in the face of Rome, and so that's why they crucified him. But that, that doesn't get you to sedition unless there's an undercutting of the Roman government in one sh way, shape, or form. And so the sedition charge coming through a messianic claim is a much cleaner way to get there. So some of that is debated among some scholars, but most scholars recognize that Jesus did and said things that got him into trouble, in enough trouble eventually to be crucified. And that's, that, those are the, that's the core data. The titulus over the cross is an important piece of evidence because it says Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Um, and, uh, um, and, and so that puts you in the messianic category, in the claim for kingship category, in the claim to bring a kingdom of God category. All those things come with that. And so um, that's, 
That's why most people working in Jesus studies will recognize that dimension of what Jesus is doing. Now, they all have different reads about what Jesus said and did, some of it related to their view about whether miracles occur and that kind of thing. I tell people the miracle discussion is a big deal because the moment you say miracles don't happen, you got a lot of the gospels that you got to rewrite. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, um, so that part of the, but he does have a very clear reputation and everyone recognizes this as being a miracle worker. No one disputes that that even shows up in, Josephus' citation about Jesus. So um, so there's something going on with Jesus that creates this agitation that eventually uh, leads to his crucifixion. And those are the core facts about Jesus that most people accept. Um, I read somewhere that was, uh, well, I can't remember what scholar. They were saying that, um, I can't remember where it is in 1 Corinthians, sorry. There's a creed in 1 Corinthians Five is it or fifteen? I can't. One Corinthians. Well, there's there there are a couple of key places in Corinthians. There's um, there's the statement on the resurrection in First Corinthians fifteen, which is a liturgical piece, Mm -hmm. uh, probably circulated in the church. You know that uh, Christ was crucified according to the scriptures, that he died and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's a core piece of what constitutes the gospel and belief in the physical resurrection. Of Jesus, there's also another core piece in chapter eight that refer has a binitarian statement. It is a variation of the Jewish Shema: "Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one." And in First Corinthians eight, we get a declaration about there being God is one, but there's a Father, and that's obviously God the Father. And then there is the there is the Son, one Lord, who is a reference to the Son, reference to Jesus. So it's a Benetarian statement, it's a Benetarian confession in the midst of refuting the idea that there is polytheism. And so um, so that's another creedal statement that's encased in the in First Corinthians that makes a statement, a Christological statement, as well as a, a statement about theology proper. Would you... Would you take the view that it was that that creed can date to within a few years of Jesus's? Ask me. I mean, those creeds. First uh, Corinthians is written in the fifties. Okay. okay, and uh, so uh, so it's you know it's in the middle fifties, and then uh, you're within twenty years of the time of Jesus. But there's a more important feature that shows that the resurrection was central to the Christian faith, and that's the conversion of Paul. Paul was, uh, Paul, you know, had the uh, vision on the Damascus Road. He had to understand what the church was preaching about the raised Jesus in order to process that vision and respond to it in the way that he did. That happened within months of the events in Jerusalem, with Paul being a persecutor of the church out of Jerusalem during that time. So that literally puts you on top of the events themselves. Yeah, yeah, I've been looking into Paul, and it's sort of hard, as I say, I'm not Christian, but sort of looking into it, I'm reading N.T. Wright's biography of Paul, which is quite, well, I quite like it, and yeah, it's, you can't, I'm trying to, you can't really explain, it's hard to explain his conversion some other way, so yeah, that's quite interesting. Yeah, but, um, there has to be, the core orthodoxy of Christianity has to be in place and has to be being taught and preached by the apostles 
for him yeah. to actually process that experience in the way yeah. that he did. Yeah. Um. So obviously you've done a lot of work on Luke and Axe. That's been a big part of your career. Um. And Luke is known as the physician, the guy who likes to get all the details correct. Um. Could you just lay out historically how accurate Luke and Axe are uh, as historical documents in terms of like geography and historical facts and are there bits of uh, confusion and inaccuracy um no luke and luke and acts is pretty accurate presentation of who jesus is and uh, there's there are two probably uh, a couple of figures to name as we talk about this one is um, a guy named william ramsey who was an archaeologist in the early later part of the 19th century, beginning part of the 20th century, who started off as a skeptic and went and did research on the book of Acts and on the things uh, associated with Acts. And the more and more he worked with the material, the more he came to see that he could trust what Luke was writing in the book of Acts. And then a second figure is a figure named Colin Hamer, who's gone through and done the same kind of thing more recently. Um, uh, in the latter part of the 20th century and actually documented it in a thick book that talks about the accuracies of Luke as a historical writer, that kind of thing down to, you know, very important details, that kind of thing. So, um, so this work is, um, uh, that work is very uh, well documented and part of a, of an explanation of why um, Luke should be seen as, giving us a good history of, of what took place. Now, it's a selective history. He isn't telling us everything that happened with the church, but he's talking about particularly the expansion into the Gentile world as the ministry of Paul uh, undertook it. So it's, 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 not, it's not a full, you know, it's not an Encyclopedia Britannica, it's an old phrase, uh, of, uh, of the early church, but it is a selective glimpse at certainly key things that were going on in the early church period. Um, what sort of a, do you have any examples that feel just really um, bring out the historicity of Luke and Acts? Um, that you know, some very striking ones. Do you have any examples? Well, I mean, <laughs> one could say it's all striking since it's all 2,000 years old. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, there, uh, there's just there's just a lot of detail in the material that that explains uh, what we have um, uh, going on. We 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 have we have a speech of Stephen that reflects um, the Septuagint. Okay, that reflects the background of the Septuagint. He's presenting the Old Testament history through the Septuagint. That's showing some sensitivity to the cultural background, the mixed cultural background of the time and the way in which the New Testament uh, appeals, not just to a Jewish audience, but to a broader audience, that kind of thing. Stephen's a Hellenist. Who, so that's the background that he comes out of. So we see presentation of a history that reflects uh, that background, that kind of, of detail uh, exists. And we've got um, a lot of information, side information about locations and that kind of thing that that really the Colin Hamer book is nothing but um, page after page of examples of this kind of thing. Um, 
<laughs> would you say that we have the exact words of Jesus um, when you read the Gospels, or are they paraphrases? Are they just getting the essence? How how we have a mix? Uh, we have a mix. In some cases, we have the exact words of Jesus. In some cases, we have paraphrases of what he's teaching, uh, and you can see this in parallel par parallel accounts where you lay them next to one another, you've got the same dialogue, but you don't have exactly the same words, but you do have exactly the same meaning. And so, um, uh, so it's, so the idea that we put this in Latin phrases, the obsessum of verba is the very words of Jesus. The obsessum of ox is the very voice of Jesus. And that includes the idea of paraphrase and summary. We do this all the time in our own historical reporting. We just don't think about it. So when a reporter gets on and reports on a speech that, say, a president or a prime minister gives, and uh, and he says, tonight, you know, the president or prime minister said, and he's summarizing a five-minute portion of the speech, and he does it in a couple of sentences, doesn't quote him, but certainly gives you the gist and the point of what the prime minister or president was saying, um, no one goes, oh, that's a problem, he didn't quote him. So uh, we have historical conventions that do this all the time that are still seen as historical. So it's not an unusual kind of way to report material uh, that comes where you're actually summarize, you're trying to summarize bigger content in a shorter space because you're always trying to, um, to condense space when you're dealing with an account that has several events wrapped up within it. Um. So what linked to this is so the Gospel of John written a lot written a bit later and different wording, you know, the I am sayings, etc. Um first of all, is it radically different wording throughout? And second of all, um does, is that not would would that ever be a cause for concern, the differences in what in the way Jesus speaks between the earliest synoptic gospels and the later gospel of John. Yeah, I tend to view the gospel of John as a reflective gospel. It's mm -hmm. it's looking back at Jesus and presenting um, what he was doing and saying in light of a full understanding of who he is. And there are places where John actually admits this. You know, mm -hmm. well, he'll tell an event and he said, well, we didn't recognize that this is what was going on until after he was glorified. Um mm -hmm couple of places where John's where John says this. There's also a different choice in how to present Jesus that makes John different from the other three Gospels. The first three Gospels present Jesus from what I like to describe as the earth up, which means you start with categories that you're used to and can kind of get your hands around, and then you watch it dawn on people who Jesus is. John does it, does, does it more deductively. I'm going to tell you at the start who Jesus hmm. is, and then I'm going to describe his history in light of that starting place so you can see it. And so he tells the story of Jesus from heaven down. From the very first verse, you know what his thesis is, because he goes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, the very first verse, he's telling you where he's going and um, and and sets everything up. And you do see some dawning on people who Jesus is, but he's told you up front who Jesus is and what it's about. And what's underneath everything that he's teaching in terms of how he's presenting himself, et cetera. So there's just, a, there's an additional layer of, of deduction and reflection that's more refractory, refractory in how to read the history 
uh, that John is doing that the other gospel writers aren't doing. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that that history is inaccurate. Okay, this is an important consideration because, you know, the the framing that we give to a historical event doesn't necessarily change the contents of that event. It's the difference between calling the first world war of the 20th century the Great War, which was its original name, to World War One because we now know about World War Two. You know, uh, the contents within that don't change, but the labeling and the viewing of the of the significance of it becomes important because the events of World War One set up the events of World War Two. Um, that kind of thing. So it has to do with how much framing you give to uh, to what you're saying that then impacts uh, how you say it. Um, would you say that John has? You wouldn't say therefore that John has a higher view of Jesus than the synoptic writers. You would say that the not when it's all said and done. When it's all said and done, they all end up in the same place. They just take different routes to get there. You see in the synoptics. You watch it dawn on people who Jesus is, but at the end of the synopsis, you've got Jesus raised and seated at the right hand of God, which tells you everything you need to know about who Jesus is. Um, John's just telling you all the way through, through the I am statements. He's reminding people who Jesus is as the events are happening. Um, so you think... So his higher so Christology, say it this way, his higher Christology is running through the whole of his gospel. Okay. Whereas in the synoptics, you watch it, you watch the higher Christology emerge. One's yeah. inductive in the way that it's going, the other's deductive. If we only had the three synoptic, synoptic gospels, would it be possible to see Jesus as not God? Is it fundamentally clear that Jesus is God? Where does he claim to be God? Because it's I, I absolutely know, I totally clear. I watch a bit too much bottom sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely totally clear in the synoptic gospels that when we're done with Jesus, he is divine. He sits with God at the right hand of uh, heaven. He is vindicated by God as a result of resurrection and a claim that says that he has the right to be there, etc. And in the context of Jewish monotheism, you have to ask the question, who has the right to sit with God in heaven? who has the right to share his presence and his glory. And if you answer that question, well, no, that's just that just belongs to the God of Israel, then you have to ask the question, so what is Jesus doing there? Yeah. Um, sort of turning back, the, back to a bit earlier in the interview, we sort of touched on it in terms of dating. When would you date all the Gospels being written and also maybe dip into a bit of the epistles, these documents, how early are they in terms of being written? These gospels, the contents of the New Testament run from about, in terms of date of writing, run from the late 40s, for probably a book like Galatians from Paul, into the 90s for a gospel like John. Um, I tend to put the other three gospels before the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, but some people will put them in the 80s which is also, it's possible, I think it's more likely they're in the 60s. But uh, but the Gospels run from, I think, the 60s to the 90s. The Pauline epistles obviously are written before his death in the mid-60s, so um, from 49 to 60, so that's the Pauline collection. Um, 
And then uh, the Petrine letters would fit in the 60s period as well, because Peter was also martyred about the same time that Paul was. Um, uh, First, second, and third John probably fit uh, later on, along with the gospel, which is written in the 90s. So later on in the sequence, no one knows who wrote Hebrews, but it looks like the temple is still functioning. So that's got to be pre-70. Um, and that takes care of most of your New Testament writings. Acts that follows off of off of Luke and goes up to 62 in terms of what it describes. I, I tend to think it's written in the mid-60s. And just to confirm, most New Testament scholars would, obviously there's variation, but have general agreement on what you're saying here. Yeah, as again, yeah. Uh, uh, well, there's... There's general agreement with regard to um, the date range that I gave for the Gospels between the mm. 60s and the and, and the 90s. Um, some might, like I say, put the Synoptic Gospels in the 80s and John in the 90. There is a little bit of debate about whether all the Pauline epistles belong to Paul, which would place some epistles outside the 60s conceivably in terms of when they were written, if, if Paul didn't write them. Uh, but... Um, uh, but for the most part, uh, with few exceptions, there's some people who put Luke, Luke as late as the early second century. Um, but w- with most exceptions, that date window between the 40s and the 90s works for almost everybody. How does this compare to other ancient documents? Uh, we compared manuscript uh, numbers to other ancient documents. How would you compare the dating to other ancient documents um, well most of the material that we have in terms of the history that's written in in the new testament of course we're talking about people who are in in the living memory of the events okay um but even when we're writing in the 90s with john we're claiming this is coming from someone who did walk with jesus so um so that's most of our ancient history um is not written by contemporaries it's written down the road. Now, there are a few autobiographical works that do discuss the history contemporaneous with the events that they're talking about, or someone who is a contemporary of the events that we're talking about. That certainly happens. Josephus, for example, is writing about uh, the war with Rome that he participated in, that kind of thing. But a lot of the history that we have that we rely on and that we trust is written after the fact, looking back, and in some cases removed by generations. What's even more interesting is the manuscript tradition about those writings is usually several centuries removed from the events being described. So the manuscript window is much broader, generally speaking, in ancient writing than it is for the material we have for the New Testament in terms of its separation from the original writings that are uh, the original time of the writing and the events that they're describing. Um, someone like Barto again <laughs> says, uh, uh, just because ancient documents were written far away from the events they recorded, um, doesn't mean that the New Testament is accurate. In other words, he's willing to throw away the ancient documents to support his arg- to support his argument. How would you respond to that sort of uh, those sort of arguments from Bartholomew? Well, I would say he's inconsistent. Uh, it's mm-hmm. inconsistent to trust the history that we see 
in ancient classical spaces with with manuscript traditions that are thinner than the New Testament and with manuscript gaps that are bigger than the New Testament from the material that we have in the New Testament and saying, well, we can't trust that. What's going on there is a worldview issue. I mean, it has to do with the kinds of events that the New Testament describes that's, that that people struggle with because they, don't, in general, don't think miracles exist. Bart Ehrman says Miracles are the last explanation you're supposed to rely on. If anything else can explain it, then it can't be a miracle. Of course, the flip side is if God exists and if he exists as a creator and a participator in the creation, you can't rule anything out. And so um, so that becomes a worldview challenge. Hmm. Do worldviews ever get, you mentioned that example there, do they get, does it get messy when, People have worldviews and they're doing the historical scholarship that you're doing. Have you ever had to test yourself to try and ensure that you're not just trying to support the current worldview you have, but you're just trying to find out? Well, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I grew up as an agnostic. So so this was something I had to become convinced of that Mm. that was going on. And I just... I find it I find it hard to believe that um, you know you you've got to ask yourself what happened to the average Jewish person in the first century who believed in a singular God and who who may they may have believed in resurrection and that God was active but they but everything about Christianity represented at least to a degree a shift in the in what Jewish people believed. Uh, you know, the idea that there would be a son, the idea that there would be a spirit, the idea of Trinity itself is is a modification, a significant modification on, on the average Jewish view. In fact, it created the Jewish pushback against Christianity. So what creates that, that idea? Or the idea of a resurrection in the midst of history. Jews believed in a resurrection. They believed in a resurrection that came at the end with a judgment at the end. You have a resurrection in the midst of history with with Jesus. Where did that come from? What generated that hope and that expectation? Jewish faith itself didn't generate that hope and that expectation. They could have very well said, well, Jesus will be raised one day and he will participate in the judgment. That would have been a Jewish take on resurrection. So something created these differences that caused many people who were traditionally Jewish to not think in traditional Jewish terms. And I don't think it was I don't think it was made up that that I, I think that suffers under the pressure of uh, of just what Christians went through in terms of persecution afterwards. Something had to explain that mutation, that change in the way Jews saw reality and, uh, and articulated themselves theologically in the most um, the most. Um, simplified explanation is something happened that created that change. Um, and and the idea that many people would, would, you know, conspire to create that out of nothing and then create stories that don't make sense culturally. Okay, you're going to sell a difficult idea, the resurrection, bodily resurrection, no less, not immortality of the soul. And the first witnesses for that event will be women who don't culturally count as witnesses. You'd never make up the story that way if you were making it up. So something had to be going on that triggered all this reaction 
that came out of um, came out of uh, Galilee and Israel in the first century that launched the early church. How do other people explain that mutation? They have trouble explaining it. If they don't see a real event, they have trouble explaining it. They think, well, they'll 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 kind of ha- they'll halfway house it. They'll say, well, the disciples believed that Jesus was resurrected, but that doesn't necessarily mean he was resurrected. You know, but you've got a mass you've got a massive group of people who you're asking to accept this perception uh, that exists, that kind of thing. Just, uh, just, and then be willing to die for it. I just think that's not correct. What's been the hot? Have you ever come, come across a bit of evidence that's been really hard to swallow um, during your time as a historical, as a New Testament scholar? Well, I mean, really- there, there are, there are issues in the text that are that are complicated and this hard to deal with. I think the census of Quirinius is a. Uh, early on in the in the Gospel of Luke is a problem. All the evidence that we have for it puts it in AD six, but um, Jesus's birth has got to be put uh, in around a, uh, four BC. And then, <laughs> fun question is, how can the Christ be born before the Christ? That's because of the way the calendars were rendered erroneously for several centuries, and then the correction produces that difference. But the, I mean the. The evidence for the timing of Quirinius's census is a problem um, and a significant one. I, I, my own explanation is, is that the process of doing the census and getting the point of actually uh, issuing taxes and that kind of thing took a long period of time in the ancient world. We aren't in an electronic digital age where everything is communicated instantly. It takes time to get that kind of administratively organized and that that took a long period and it landed in the time of Quirinius, but that doesn't mean that Quirinius is the beginning point for that process. Um, when we've been speaking about New Testament scholars um, and the general consensus of New, New Testament scholarship, um, what's the split between Christians and non-Christians? Because surely more Christians will become New Testament scholars. Um, so does that it might for a non-Christian looking in, it might seem more more backed up if there are non-Christian scholars who also agree with these consent with these consensuses. So in general, well, of course, uh, one of the problems that you have is is that you have a variety of Christians. You have Christians yeah, who are yeah. who are conservative, and then you have Christians who are who are not, who are more mm. inclined to to uh, a modern mindset, that kind of thing that that yeah. limits or doesn't see miracles as operating in the Bible, that kind of thing. So that's the that's the bigger that's the bigger divide than whether someone's a Christian or not, because the you have people who are ethically, I'll say it this way, you have people who are ethically Christian, but who don't uh, believe the history of the Bible in being there. They just simply believe in the ethical thrust of what Christianity teaches. And there are a lot of people who study Christianity who belong in that category. Uh, and but surely, if these events happens, then you can't really go in the ethical, ethical category because if someone's died for your sins, that demands like the craziest response. You know, the biggest. Yeah, but they will yeah. Jesus more. They will treat Jesus more as a prophet than as mm-hmm. a savior. 
and they will believe in the in the in the human story and the uh, how can I say in the humanism that's wrapped up in Christianity uh, rather than believing the theological discussion about sin so much, or they may recognize sin, but they may not re- recognize the idea that there's such a thing as atonement for sin, that kind of thing. So they recognize the depravity of humanity, but they won't necessarily think that there's an atoning significance to Jesus's death. They'll put him in an ethical category and a prophetic category versus a messianic category and a, and a high priestly category. And they'll, and they'll make that distinction in the midst of making that distinction. Um, they'll view the historicity of the Bible very differently than a, a more conservative Christian world. And that produces your split. And God mm-hmm. never got to answer your question. Mm-hmm. What produces the split is that, and then you have people who represent that across the board. I think it's fair to say that, generally speaking, in university settings, the Christians who are teaching tend to be of the sort that I've just described. Um, but the people who tend to be in in seminaries and in uh, Christian colleges and that kind of thing, generally speaking, are more weighted to the more conservative side. And the split is, is I'm trying to think through ATS schools. This is the, um, uh, the accreditation for theological schools, what that breakdown is. The bulk of people are in the more conservative schools. Mm. Uh, and, uh, but the bulk of the, of the, the bulk of university professors are in the other camp to say it mm-hmm. that way. Well, thank you so much for featuring uh, on the interview. I really enjoyed it, and I hope listeners do. And yeah, thank you so much. You're very, very welcome. Thank you so much for listening to that interview with Daryl Bock. I hope you loved it. I certainly did. Um, If you did enjoy it, feel free to give the podcast a follow for more interviews with more fascinating people.